Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rusciutti, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rusciutti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. This is the second in our series of shows in which we take a local look at a national problem, the relationship between home ownership and the widening wealth gap. What exactly is the relationship between the wealth gap and home ownership? Well, it's pretty simple. The way most of us in the United States accrue wealth is the appreciation of the value of our home. Why this leads to a wealth gap is easily demonstrated here in New Orleans. Over 50% of New Orleanians rent, not because they've made some maverick financial decision about home ownership, but simply because they can't afford to buy a house. Because more people with more wealth spend more money and therefore fuel the economy, most economists agree that widespread wealth is economically better for everybody, even the already wealthy. So given that the best way to widespread wealth is widespread home ownership, how do we make homes affordable for the 50% of New Orleanians who are priced out of the market? Getting someone who can't afford to buy a house to become a homeowner might sound like an impossibility. But that's exactly what both of my guests on Out to Lunch are doing. Will Bradshaw is chairman and co-founder of the property development company Green Coast Enterprises. As a property developer, Will is familiar with the various tax incentives and financial products people use in big business real estate use to finance and build houses. Today, Will is using his expertise to put those same tax incentives and financial products to work for low-income would-be homeowners. He's doing this through a project he's called the Reimagine Fund. I'm going to let Will explain this in detail, but basically it works by forming groups of people who pool their money. The Reimagine Fund uses that money to leverage tax advantages normally available to wealthier property developers and through these complex maneuvers is able to finance people into properties they would otherwise never be able to afford. It's a fascinating, unique hybrid of property development and social activism. Will, welcome out to lunch. Thanks so much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. There's another way of making home ownership affordable, make the price of new construction homes cheaper. That sounds impossible, right? The price of a new house is determined by the unavoidably high cost of building it. But what if you could find a revolutionary way to build new houses that is substantially cheaper than anything that's ever been done before? That's what a New Orleans company is doing. The company is called Shibusa Systems. The word systems refers to the method of building houses that the company has pioneered. Their new homes don't require contractors to build them. Yes, you heard that correctly. Your brand new Shibusa Systems house is not built by a contractor. The components of the house are pre-cut, packaged, and delivered to the site of your new home where they are easily assembled. It's kind of like um, getting a house from Ikea delivered. And that's not all. There's a long list of innovative cost-cutting elements to the Shibusa home building system that we'll get into in the next 30 minutes with the CEO and co-founder of Shibusa Systems, Katie Reynolds. Katie, welcome out to lunch. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Will, as I understand it, 
the kind of tax deals and financial products that you've put together in the Reimagine Fund are complex. Broadly, in general terms, you can explain how you can take a group of people who individually don't have enough money to buy a house and turn them into a group of people who each individually can afford to buy a house. Uh, let's say I'm a person with a small amount of money and I want to buy a house. Firstly, how much money do I have to have to be part of this, and what else do I have to do? Um, so I think the the wealth gap issues that we're describing are, are hugely important, and um, there's so many nested challenges um, associated with it that what we're really looking at at the Reimagine Fund is a, is a very narrow portion of this um, where there are a set of tax credit programs that exist, the historic tax credit, the new markets tax credit, the renewable energy credits, uh, et cetera, that uh, allow companies to invest their tax liability into the ownership of real estate. Uh, real estate is generally commercial, uh, so not residential as much as, as it is commercial. And within the way that the, the tax laws that were created that created these programs, uh, there was a, kind of an exclusion, a carve-out that was created called the Passive Activity Loss Carve-Out um, that allows regular taxpayers, 95% of the country, uh, to use their tax liability uh, also to build wealth or to, to take an ownership stake in these same projects. So, well, the tax uh, liability is, uh, in this case, is wealthy developers? Well, in this case, everybody pays their federal income taxes, right? Like you pay your withholdings every month when you get your paycheck. They say it's not voluntary. Um, it, it generally is not. <laughs> um, <laughs> that uh, what you can do if you are a real estate developer or a corporation is instead of paying your income tax to the federal government, you can invest that tax liability into real estate projects. And when the policies that were written that created these programs, um, they made this exclusion for regular people, right? 95% of taxpayers that don't currently participate um, were allowed to use some portion of their tax liability, a small piece of what they pay in taxes, towards investing in these same programs, right? And the programs all have a public policy purpose that they're trying to create. Uh, it might be that they're creating low-income housing. It might be that they're creating uh, preserving cultural assets. It might be that they're creating renewable energy. Uh, it might be that they're creating new businesses and low-income census tracts. Uh, so there's some public purpose that these tax dollars uh, ostensibly are going towards. But Will, I've never heard of this. Did you like read the footnotes of some <laughs> legislation? Um, I've, I've been doing this kind of work for 20 years, um, so it's really the only thing I've ever done. And uh, I have become uh, increasingly interested in that whole time period about how to include people who are left out of these processes. Katie, the concept of making home ownership more affordable by making homes cheaper to build is on the one hand brilliantly simple and on the other hand seemingly impossible. But you've managed to do it basically by breaking down every single component of house building and figuring out a way to reduce or even totally eliminate each cost. Probably the most obvious example is being able to do away with subcontractors because apparently putting a Shibusa Systems house together doesn't require construction. This sounds like a kind of legal technicality or semantics, but I'm assuming it's neither. So, can you start by explaining how constructing a house is not actually construction? So. We do, we have focused on trying to take construction out of construction, but 
before we get in trouble with the New Orleans Building Department, we do have a contractor's license and we are the, the contractor. So we both design and build and our solution is from conception to completion. So we like to take a look at a, a developer's raw piece of land and then we do all the site planning and adaptation work and we do everything until um, the house is fully complete and ready for move-in for occupancy. And But what we have done is we spent a lot of time researching uh, why uh, there's a housing crisis and why it costs so much to, to build housing. And we took a lot, look at all the solutions that are out there from just conventional construction to modular housing, manufactured housing, prefabricated, and now you have 3D printed housing. And we looked at what uh, people were doing right and what they were doing wrong. And we really felt that even though people are jumping on the, the bandwagon for modular and manufactured, that this ultimately is not the solution because it causes, um, it. you must, when you're building and constructing those uh, housing units off-site um, instead of on the construction site, you're, you're required to ship all your building materials to a manufacturing facility out in the middle of nowhere. That has a huge carbon footprint. And then you manufacture these into 3D modules or manufactured houses and you then have to put them, massively package them, put them on the back of a flatbed truck and ship them back to the urban core. So you have an incredibly uh, large carbon footprint and a lot of expenses and a lot of waste. So we we are not a big believer in off-site construction. Can I, can I ask you, I know what mm -hmm. people are thinking right now, and that is, is this kind of the prefab homes I see that are sort of look like trailers and such, but that's not the case. No, it's not the case because even though we're prefabricated, we've designed our housing. We are a modular design because it's a system of bays, but we're not modular construction. So we've, uh, we took apart a house and instead of doing, um, using two by four, 16 inches on center, which is conventional construction, we start with a heavy timber frame with eight by eights and three by twelves. We have a proprietary joint that allows us to frame our houses um, and true them up with precision before we, we bolt them or screw them, the framing into place. And then we have a panelized system of construction. But all of our component pieces are standardized and repeatable. So it means that we can use the same pieces on every house. But we really looked at five essential requirements for housing. Designing and building economically, being able to do it fast so you minimize labor on site, that substantially reduces cost, and then um, making it sustainable making it healthy, and then making it aesthetically pleasing. And we don't believe there's any home builder and designer in the country that can do all five. And even though we look like a design build and home builder, we're actually an industrial technology firm because we've really spent a lot of time and investment on our technology platform to really simplify the whole process of design and supply chain management. Well, Will, I've got to ask, you touched on something that oh, it just means so much to me, and that is uh, the idea of home ownership and how it uh, it leads to um, eventual wealth. We're about to see, I think, the most interesting thing has ever occurred, and that is this: the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world, and uh, and it's again going to basically increase the uh, inequity again. The uh, 
Um, minority folks don't tend to uh, own a home, so they haven't really been able to build wealth, and so what they pass on to the next generation is, is re relatively small. Uh, this would change that. Um, I think it, it really has the potential to do so, and it's a huge problem. Um, you know, that uh, I'm actually about to release a podcast uh, called Property Lines. Uh, and the first episode of Property Lines is the story of a very good friend of mine uh, whose father was an African-American frogman in the Navy during World War II uh, and uh, bought a house on the GI Bill. And immediately after buying that house, uh, the neighborhood that they lived in in West Philly uh, became all African-American. All the white families moved out uh, in a three-year time period. Uh, his dad got sick. Uh, and ended up dying when, when Phil was six. They lost all the equity in the house. Uh, and it's sort of his personal story is a story about how the GI Bill sort of failed uh, an African-American family, even though they got to do all the things. They went to college on the GI Bill. They bought a house on the GI Bill, et cetera. Uh, and Phil is now a deputy mayor of New York City. Uh, he's this tenured faculty member at MIT. He was my dissertation chair. Uh, he's been very successful in life uh, despite these challenges, but he is also a scholar on economic opportunity. And so he is an expert on the GI Bill. And one of the things he said to me that just floored me and continues to motivate my thinking about Reimagine and what I do with the rest of my career uh, is that the impact of the GI Bill as a disparate racial policy uh, has a, a will have an impact on the wealth gap that is between 50 and 100 times greater than the impact of slavery, right? Which is staggering, right? Like, that, that drops you on your butt, right? Um, and I think it is important for professionals who care about that problem to figure out what they can do in their own lives and their own work uh, and the things that they know about uh, how can we... Uh, do things to address that challenge. Because at the end of the day, uh, having the economic freedom to become whatever you can imagine, to do whatever it is that you think you're capable of doing, um, that really is what freedom is about, right? And we have set up a system uh, in this country for the last several hundred years that people who look like you and me, Peter, have different opportunities than people who look like Katie or people who are African American. Um, just as a sidebar on some of this, the wealth gap to me is also about gender equity. Uh, it was 1974 before we passed the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which is the act that said, you know, that Katie can go to the bank and get a loan without her husband or her father co-signing, which is bananas. I mean, it, right? it's just nobody totally would have guessed bonkers, that date. Right. right? 1974. It's crazy. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Will Bradshaw, creator of the Reimagine Fund that is using tax incentives and other financial products to get people with limited resources to become homeowners. And Katie Reynolds, co-founder of Shabusa Systems, a company that's pioneering a revolutionary new way to dramatically lower the cost of new home constructions. Katie, and I know everybody thinks they started out at the same point, but um, uh, about 12 years ago, I brought my, a bunch of my students to Omaha, Nebraska to spend the day with Warren Buffett. And one of the things he said was, just to, to really show how ridiculous that statement is, he said, if there's seven billion people, and if you took a bucket with seven billion piece, little pieces of paper, would you be willing to stick your arm in there and pick out one, and that was going to be your life? And it's like, no way. I mean, that's a, so it's a big deal. And I happen to know, by the way, Katie, the Shibusa means 
simple, subtle, and elegant in Japanese because of my background in Japanese. No, actually, I just looked it up before you came in. <laughs> but it is, um, they, uh, hey, help me with this, though. There's an empty spot somewhere, and uh, a developer owns it, and they start talking to you about what they would like there. What happens next, chronologically? How does it go through? So we spend time with that developer, and we really we try to understand what the developer's objectives are, what who their their market um, their target market is, and then we design around their their budget and their target market. So whether it's a single family or multifamily, we will um, design. And our design our our housing projects are flexible. With the the um, our design, we are able to. Uh, build our housing on uneven, unlevel land. So we can build down here where it's a swamp and you need pilings, or we can build on the bedrock in, in New York or, um, you know, out west. So we have designed our housing to be adaptable to any region. So uh, you guys come to, come to terms, you and mm-hmm. the developer, and then what happens next? So, we can, so once we do the design um, we, they, and we lock it into place, we... we we guarantee our pricing because we, because of our technology system, we really understand ex- exactly every material piece that we need down to screws and nails. And we lock in a pricing uh, for the developer and then um, we complete the design work for permitting. Once a project comes out of, uh, receives permits, then we break ground. And for a first house that we built during two hurricanes, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's and COVID, it took us 16 weeks to build from um, foundation through to owner occupancy, uh, a thousand square foot, two bedroom, two bath house. So Katie, there's three components, I guess, that mm-hmm. I didn't get. It's cheaper, it's faster, and it's greener, I guess. It's I mean, green, much greener and healthier. But what about, how's this, where is this, um, like with manufactured housing, I know this like a giant factory with robots in Indiana somewhere. Where are you? Where is where is all this happening? So unlike um, manufactured housing, Warren Buffett owns Clayton Homes right. or Katera that just went bankrupt, uh, we have outsourced the production of all of our materials to best-in-class suppliers. So we use um, James Hardy, Hardy Board. We use Louisiana Pacific products. We use Sierra Pacific Windows. They're one of the most sustainable companies in California. And we, we use um, Mohawk Flooring, TimberTech for our porch decking, and uh, LG for all of our appliances and HVAC and countertops. So we outsource to best-in-class suppliers so that, you know, when we want, and oh, I should mention KCD kitchen cabinets. When we want um, changes in our products, we don't have to go and get the capital to do it. We can tell our suppliers, hey, um, we, we would really like to see this change. Could you take it to your innovation committee and see about making this change in your supplies for us? Now, does they, do they send it to like a spot where it's assembled? And where is that? So we, um, as I said before, we try to take construction out of construction. So all of our precision component pieces are... Uh, flat packed and shipped directly to the site and all of our people are full-time employees so we do not subcontract out but we do assemble the house and we've tried to make it so that it is assembly so that it can go together as fast and efficiently and durably as possible 
and, uh, and by the way, I use the example of IKEA, but I can't. Put well, we do say it's kind of so. like IKEA okay. or the Sears and Roebuck house. That yeah, remember that? That was back in the nineteen twenties. Produced some pretty yeah. great stuff, actually. That are still standing a hundred years later. <laughs> and that's our goal. We um, actually the the company that I founded fifteen years ago that I'm no longer working for day to day, but uh, still have an interest in uh, and advise. Uh, we just uh, contracted for the first Shibuza house. Uh, what a week ago? Is that something yeah, like a couple weeks. Well, ago? a few weeks ago. Yeah. So we're doing um, five houses uh, test marketing for um, for Green Coast. Oh, that's and great. And we um, have just selected the first property to to develop. What about? Uh, do you ever get? I mean, because maybe this would be the dream: is you get a like a whole block, and they all become your homes. Is mm-hmm. uh, are you getting close to something like that? We are. So our very first client developer. Um, Van joins from here in New Orleans. We built his first house in the Lower Ninth Ward, and he now is developing a project in Central City, and it will be 16 housing units. And we will break ground on that in the fourth quarter of this year. And we're actually trying to make it an entirely net zero community. You know, Will, the thing that gets me is the, the folks that think because this is very good because we have a pizza in front of us, so if you look at this, a pizza pie that if... Um, uh, you know, if they do things that'll maybe take away part of their income pie and make it re- redistribute a little bit here, they're very negative about that. But the truth of the matter is, you're ending up with a bigger pie. You know, when once everybody can contribute in the economy, I I don't know how we're going to get that across. Yeah, uh, I I think it's a it's an excellent question. I mean, that if you look at historically the greatest periods of economic growth in our nation. Uh, or in many other nations around the world, they happen at the places or at the points in time when there is wide participation uh, in the benefits of the economy. Like we always right. think of the 1950s. Uh. Absolutely, right? That when you have a bunch of people who are getting kind of their fair share, that's the point that you see growth. Um, and, you know, we don't do a particularly good job, I think, of learning from our history. Um, so I think it becomes a, a continued challenge, uh, but I think you're you're right on. Right? I think it's very true. Katie, how much? Um, trying to think, I guess it's going to differ in such, but how much are we talking about for a house? Well, right now, because we're a startup and the supply chain is crazy right now. Um, to if we built just a one-off two-bedroom, two-bath, thousand-square-foot house, we're looking at here in the South about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars to to design build. Uh, the developer is responsible for the land and for financing the development, but we take care of the insurance and everything from termite pretreatment, permitting, inspections, everything else. So it is a kind of a one-stop shop cost. But once I think that we gain scale and we can, and the market materials prices stabilize a little bit more, we are, um, we're hoping to have a 25% decrease in pricing. And generally, though, it's uh, cheaper than regular construction? Yes. Is it like 10% or...? We're probably 20 to 30% wow. less than... Um, I think you're going to see this year a lot of design build firms dropping out of building housing because they subcontract out all their labor. The cost of materials is incredibly high and labor costs are high and I think right now a lot of design build firms are having trouble making projects for market rate and lower income housing 
pencil. Well, if um, I have you back in a couple of years, what will this whole goal look like? So, um, a couple of, of things on that. Um, first, I have uh, taken an opportunity to join an existing business uh, that thought the idea that I was working on was interesting, that it overlapped with some of the stuff that they were doing. Uh, and so I've joined the team at 60 West TCI. We're in the process of rebranding as Rise Impact Capital. And in the next several months, we should have a number of really exciting announcements to make on that front. Um, but one of the things we are already working on and already doing is working to support uh, entrepreneurial developers, particularly developers that are led by women and people of color. Um, that. You know, I spent the first 20 years of my career as like a subsistence developer. Um, so I kind of know a lot about all the things that go wrong and um, all the stuff that you have to fix. You know what I got to kick out of reading your background and how you come from a long family of developers and your goal as a child was not to be a real Not to be a real, absolutely. I wanted nothing to do with it for a long time. But I'm really excited about the team at Rise and I think the opportunities that we have uh, to work on these, these things together. Uh, and you know, longer term, we're looking at some of these issues with uh, the passive activity loss carve out and how you can uh, pool or bundle investors, not so much to buy a, a home for one of those investors to live in, but to buy an interest in the senior housing project down the street or the dilapidated building in the middle of the neighborhood that's been an eyesore and and kind of an attractive nuisance for 20 years uh, and to transform those assets into something that can be owned in part by community members uh, and help those community members build wealth. So I hope that in a couple of years that we'd have, you know, several projects under our belt where we can, we can point at those things. The uneven distribution of wealth in our country and in our city is a gap all of us would like to see narrowed. Nobody wants wealthy people to become less wealthy, but we all agree that it would be a good thing if less wealthy people had more access to resources. The most fundamental way most of us can have greater wealth and hand it on to the next generation is through widespread home ownership. It's fairly well accepted that we can be a nation of homeowners without upending the economy or unleashing an economic revolution. We just need to stop talking about the widening wealth gap and instead find ways to start closing it. Uh, It can be done. It's not easy. It requires vision for a community, dedication to an economic and financial plan, and hard work. There are people actively working on this. Katie and Will, you are two of the pioneers in this field who are making a difference. Both of you are in a position to have a massive future impact on this issue nationwide. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today and out to lunch. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Peter. It's a lot of fun. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Katie Reynolds, CEO and co-founder of Shibusa Systems, and Will Bradshaw, chairman and co-founder of the Green Coast Enterprises and founder of the Reimagined Fund. We edited this show to fit into our time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Katie and Will's inroads into affordable housing by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, it's neworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. 
Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. If you'd like to hear more about affordable housing in New Orleans, in your podcast app, you'll find a recent episode of Out to Lunch called Closing the Wealth Gap. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Jones Walker. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.